This is Life Solved, the podcast that lifts the lid on innovative ideas and research at the University of Portsmouth. I'm Robin Montague, and it's my job to make sure everyone hears about the amazing work that's taking place here to make a real difference in all our lives. For the last episode in this series, we're meeting up again with Professor Steve Fletcher to find out about some exciting new developments in tackling plastics pollution in our oceans and beyond. What the treaty will do is put in interventions across the life cycle to ensure that the plastics we do use really do make a positive difference. And we'll find out why the oceans could hold the key to solving some of our world's biggest problems. So we know about those three crises now. And what we are starting to see are large-scale solutions coming forward. This is Life Solved. Steve Fletcher's a professor in ocean policy and economy here at the University of Portsmouth. But what on earth do oceans have to do with our economies? Everything we do and use depends upon our relationship to the environment and the relationship to the ocean. Something like a billion people depend upon the protein we get from the sea. Something like half of the oxygen we breathe comes from the sea. And the sea is a really important carbon sink, which is keeping our planet cooler than it would otherwise be. So we rely on the sea for loads of things that keep us healthy and and keep the economy and keep society functioning. And I think people are increasingly recognizing the sea isn't just important for the economy, but it's also important for our physical and mental health as well. So just taking a walk by the coast reduces anxiety and it's a great source of exercise as well. So the sea does a huge amount of different things for us. We need to look after it a little bit better, I think. One of the best things about Portsmouth is its coastal location. There's nothing as good for the soul as a trip to South Sea Beach on a summer's day. But away from the tourism, away from the science and the fisheries, what do our coastal areas mean to people who don't live anywhere near the water these days? There's a lot of research now that shows that people who live far away from the sea actually yearn to be closer to the sea. And we see people moving out of cities to the seaside, to the coast, to seek a a different kind of lifestyle, perhaps one they perceive to be less hectic and and calmer in various ways. So I think those who live by the coast are are the fortunate ones who have the day-to-day access to the sea. But actually, those inland are just as dependent. And I think many people living further from the sea really have a deep connection with the ocean, but expressed in a a different way to people who live right on the doorstep of the sea. Less hectic? Hmm. South Sea Beach in a heatwave, anyone? Nevertheless, even people in our urban and non-coastal areas are developing a new awareness of our dependency upon the oceans. But how does this compare with what's happening in other nations? Different countries rely on the ocean in different ways. So some countries will rely upon uh, locally sourced fish, for example, to feed small communities or, or to feed their families, a kind of subsistence fishing activity. That doesn't happen so much in the global north or, or certainly not in the United Kingdom in, in quite the same way. So, of course, we have a different relationship with the marine resources directly. And perhaps in the United Kingdom, we see the ocean as something to be enjoyed, uh, a source of relaxation or, or recreation, perhaps, rather than a 
there's something we take resources from in a day-to-day survival sense. But really, you know, the connections are similar, but expressed differently. In recent times, disputes over international fishing rights have hit the headlines here in the UK. So how do the shifting natural boundaries of the oceans become an issue for economies and politics? Fisheries rules and arrangements are just off-the-scale complicated. They were pretty complicated when we were part of the European Union and now in our post-Brexit world. The simplicity that Brexit was meant to deliver doesn't really seem to have arisen just yet. And what we see are complex relationships between countries and fish stocks, which are made further complicated by the fact that fish stocks are changing all the time, they're moving all the time, and with climate change as well affecting the ocean, it's increasingly difficult to predict how fish stocks will will change and move. So the days are long gone, really, where we can say one country has this fish stock, another country has the the other fish stock. It just is is much more complicated than that. And really what we're we're looking for are, are much more dynamic ways of allocating catch to countries that reflect the realities of the ecosystem rather than kind of false boundaries that are driven by countries and sort of administrative rules rather than the, the ecosystem itself. So basically, as nature changes her own boundaries to survive, human economies and uses also have to adapt, not the other way around. That's going to require some international collaboration. Both on, on land and at sea, animals and plants move around because they're responding to natural systems and, and the way they move has no respect for national boundaries or or different countries. But what we're seeing under climate change conditions right now is that those changes are more complex and more unpredictable than they've ever been. So, for example, in the past, we would always know, for example, that elephants migrate between certain countries in Africa at a certain time of year. And that pattern has stayed like that for, for centuries, whereas now... The, the route the elephant takes across Africa is much more unpredictable because the availability of food is different, is different, the temperature is different, the climatic drivers that they're experiencing uh, are different. And so what were once relatively certain patterns are becoming changed and modified as a result of climate change and a result of the way people are using the resources that the elephants would normally use, competing really very directly for forest resources, for instance. Steve thinks our relationship with the sea isn't just about the lives and livelihoods that exist along the coastlines these days. As we shift to acknowledge its enormous potential as a resource in the fight against climate change, we're also starting to value the economic and social benefits that exist too. And when you look around the world, what we're starting to see is a transition towards something called a sustainable blue economy. And the idea of the sustainable blue economy is one where the links between people and the ocean are acknowledged, but they're managed in such a way that we keep the ocean healthy whilst also delivering the benefits for people that the ocean provides us with, like food and relaxation and enjoyment and and recreation uh, and so on. So the the sustainable blue economy is a really interesting way of, of thinking about globally, our relationship with the ocean. 
And what's caused this step change in the way we're thinking about the oceans as a resource? It's those climate drivers Steve mentioned earlier. Human activity has caused changes to take place and accelerate in our ocean ecosystems, impacting the economies, policies and lives of all those who rely upon them. I think the scale of the challenge that we face globally is now pretty clear, actually. The UN Environment Programme talk about three interrelated global crises. They talk about biodiversity loss, so the loss of nature and natural systems, often through over-exploitation or through the direct removal of ecosystems to make way for hotel developments or something like that. They also talk about the pollution crisis, which could be anything from sewage pollution, uh, chemicals running off from agricultural sites, uh, chemicals dumped into rivers uh, by industry, or plastic reaching the ocean in various ways. And the third crisis is climate change. And of course, this is the one that we're perhaps most familiar with, the idea that the earth is warming, the oceans are warming, the oceans acidifying, and that's creating a whole load of change in terms of uh, sea level rise, but also the range that plants and animals occupy is changing. It's creating greater extremes of weather conditions and just creating greater uncertainty in the economy and in the, the life support system that keeps people and the economy going. So we know about those three crises now. And what we, as a global society, are starting to see are large-scale solutions coming forward. Time is running out for our planet, and faster than ever before. So what sort of options do we have to slow or reverse that change before it's too late? One large-scale solution would be about decarbonisation, about switching to low-carbon energy sources and low-carbon lifestyles that allow us to create fewer greenhouse gases that then slows down the climate change and the warming effects that we're beginning to see everywhere. And when it comes to the oceans, they offer the chance to supercharge the planet's decarbonizing powers. From undersea aquifers that store carbon produced by power stations, to biological and biochemical experiments with natural processes, there's a great deal of science going on to harness the power of the oceans. The oceans are also a natural store of carbon. The seawater itself takes up carbon, and that means there's less carbon in the atmosphere. So the ocean is a natural climate regulator for us. What we're also beginning to see are new technological advances in how we capture and store carbon. So now we can take carbon out of the air and store it in the seabed underneath the ocean. And that keeps it out of the natural systems and locks away the carbon so it has no warming effect on the atmosphere. And my suspicion is that we're going to see more and more of this going forward. It's a solution that entirely eliminates the warming effects of carbon in the atmosphere. So what other big changes are taking place in the way we think about resource use? The second big shift is a shift to a circular economy. This is an economy that doesn't require us to identify and and dig up new resources all the time. We keep using the same resources again and again. That's what makes it circular. 
And that's not just about recycling, although recycling is a big part of it. It's also about not using things we don't need in the first place. So reducing our use of resources at source, uh, just not making things we don't need, like single-use plastics would be a, a good example of that. But also about reuse and being efficient with the resources that have already been created into products for us. So the circular economy really is a low pollution economy because there's very little waste. It's also an economy that ultimately is, is better for people and better for nature. So if we can decarbonize and shift to a circular economy, what we start to see is a new global system of how we relate to resources and how we relate to nature and how the economy can be more resilient to change because it's based on circular low carbon principles rather than a, an economy that's based on digging up resources the whole time, using them briefly and then dumping them and them becoming pollution. So it's a real step change and a change that offers real hope, I think. Steve also leads the university's Revolution Plastics Initiative, led by the University of Portsmouth. Which is a pan-university, mission-driven research initiative to tackle the negative effects of plastics across the entire plastics lifecycle. At Portsmouth, we're doing a huge amount of research into plastics. Plastics in the atmosphere, plastics in our homes, uh, plastics in nature in various other ways, the new approaches to recycle plastics, alternative to plastics, plastics policy analysis, loads of different research uh, around plastics. And what we've done is pulled that together into one coherent program of research to make it stronger and more impactful. And that's what we call Revolution Plastics. All in all, it's plastic-tastic here. But just a couple of months ago, a major breakthrough took place in moving all this research into action on the global stage. One of the benefits of being able to draw from research across such a broad range of activities is that it puts us in a very strong position then to bring the science into policy very effectively. So we are working with the UN Environment Programme to help the preparations to establish a new global treaty to end plastic pollution. The mandate for this agreement was agreed at the UN Environment Assembly in March 2022. And that mandate states that by the end of 2024, a new legally binding international agreement will be established with the sole purpose of tackling and ending plastic pollution. So we're in a great position to feed our research into that amazingly ambitious process. And if that treaty works, what we'll see is a, a huge step change to radically reduce plastic entering not just the ocean, but the environment in general. A treaty like this will make sure that not only are the right nations involved, but also anyone with a stake and responsibility can be part of this mandate for change. The Global Treaty to End Plastic Pollution is an agreement between countries only. Countries are the sovereign bodies within the UN system and any legally binding UN agreement will just cover countries. However, in the plastics economy, 
it's entirely clear that big companies have an extremely strong role to play both plastic producers and plastic users. And arguably as well, you know, broader society in terms of how we you know, use plastics in our everyday life as well. The UN Environment Programme, who are taking forward the negotiations uh, for the treaty, they're very keen to ensure that there are voices from a wider range of organisations included in the negotiations as well. So uh, businesses are involved, scientists and researchers are involved and civil society organizations as well. So campaigners, pressure groups, community groups from all around the world are involved in the treaty process as well. Although ultimately it would be a, an agreement between countries, but we all know in reality that any substantial change like ending plastic pollution is beyond what countries can do alone. So we need a global coalition to, to tackle plastic pollution. And the treaty process is a way of electrifying that coalition to really produce the changes that we need to see. So why is plastic in the ocean and our environments such an urgent issue to tackle in the bigger picture? Plastic value chains are extremely complicated. So the plastic itself, the pellets, could be produced in, say, five countries. They then ship that those pellets to you know, 20 other countries. In those 20 other countries, they might produce 100 different products each uh, out of that plastic, which then is shipped to 50 other countries. And so you end up with an extremely complicated supply chain. Those products are then sold, and then people dispose of those products. And then those products that are now waste, essentially, are either dealt with in the country where the waste is collected and created, or the waste is then shipped to another country where, ideally, it's better set up to deal with that type of waste. Unfortunately, that last part doesn't always work. So in the past, what we've seen is mixed waste, usually, with some elements of plastic in it, gets shipped to countries that haven't got the infrastructure to deal with that plastic waste properly. And so we see terrible stories of people, particularly in the global south, just burning plastics and putting plastics into landfill. And burning plastics is, is a terrible thing to do. It's extremely toxic. And there have been some reports that up to a million people die per year from mismanaged plastic waste in the global south. That's largely through inhalation and ingestion of plastics when they're being burned. Uh, those estimates are unconfirmed, but they seem plausible, uh, I think. That's a deeply important crisis to solve. So what does Steve think the next steps will be as a result of the treaty? The initial discussions suggest that the treaty will look at plastics across the entire value chain, the entire life cycle of plastics. So it's not just looking at what to do with waste plastic, but also it's looking at how to minimise the production of plastic in the first place, how to focus on plastics we really need, how to work with consumers to enable them to have a, a meaningful choice in the plastics they choose to, to, to buy and use. What I anticipate is a 
more holistic way of thinking about plastic. So we won't just see plastic as a problem once it's been used that then has to be shipped off to some other place to be to be dealt with. What the treaty will do is look across the entire life cycle and put in interventions across the life cycle to ensure that the plastics we do use are the necessary plastics that are out there that really do make a positive difference, that those plastics can then either be reused or be recycled in a sensible way, and that consumers know what they need to do to enable that reuse or recycling to happen. And I think the other thing we'll see is much greater responsibility being placed on plastic producers. And already there's a scheme called extended producer responsibility, where those organizations that produce the plastic have a responsibility to deal with plastic at the end of its life. And what we see there is companies beginning to make their plastic products more reusable and more recyclable. So already those sorts of interventions are beginning to work. There's clearly plenty to be achieved in the coming years. Is there an economic upside to facing these human and environmental issues? There are huge opportunities for innovation uh, around the plastics agenda. There are innovations around how do we uh, design products to be more reusable? How we, do we design them to include fewer plastic types so they're easier to recycle? How do we design waste collection processes to be more efficient and more effective? What about new materials that avoid the use of plastic uh, entirely. There are so many um, innovation opportunities. Then there's the more sort of technical end of innovation. So what about new recycling technologies that are cleaner and greener than the technologies that we currently use? So at every point in the plastics life cycle, there are opportunities to, to innovate, opportunities for, for job creation, and opportunities to strengthen the green economy on the back of tackling what is one of the world's most pressing environmental and social challenges. So a shift in thinking to low carbon and circular economic principles, alongside an international treaty towards enacting life-saving, climate-saving research, it looks like the movement towards a global, sustainable blue economy is gaining momentum every day, with plenty of positives to be gained for the health of the planet and people. If you'd like to find out more about all of our research at the University of Portsmouth, head for our website port.ac.uk forward slash research and follow the work of Revolution Plastics on Twitter at UOP Plastics. We're taking a little break now, but we'll be back with a new series in a few weeks. In the meantime, you can catch up on all eight series of Life Solved by following this podcast on your favourite app. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.